Welcome to Energy Radio. My name is Lisa Katz, and this is episode 85. As many of our avid listeners know, Energy Radio is a media channel that CEM has created as a way of educating and inspiring our listeners. And today, we hope you will become all the wiser on the topic of fuel cells. With that, I'd like to extend a warm welcome to our guest, Mr. Frank Carnavali, CEO of Alkaline Fuel Cell Power. Welcome, Frank, to Energy Radio. Lisa, thank you very much for having me. This is an awesome opportunity. Yeah, you are most welcome, most welcome. And I'm, I'm pretty excited, actually, as well. I, uh, I did a little bit of research on Alkaline Fuel Cell Power yesterday evening, and uh, yeah, I was pretty impressed with what you guys are doing. So um, without further ado, what we normally do is ask our guests for a bit of a background from a professional or personal standpoint, yeah, uh, if you yeah. like, in terms of you know sort of how you got into the energy space and how you ended up as the CEO in this particular case of Alkaline Fuel Cell Power. So um, yeah, feel free to expand on that however you like, Frank. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, so I'll try to make it as quick as I can. Um, so it's an interesting background. So I started in in government, municipal government, and uh, really, you know, I'm not going to go too far back. So I started municipal government in politics, uh, worked for some politicians. And so I was always generally pretty good understanding what the end voters are looking for and understands what they need in the equation, right? That's something fundamental to, you know, whatever you're selling, if you don't know why they're interested in buying it or not buying it, then you're not going to do a very good job. Um, so I start from that perspective and and even that thinking. I'm not an engineer, although I've owned companies that have engineers, so that's always cool conversations. Yeah. Um, so I start from the perspective of what does this end customer want? Uh, and, you know, left government ran what I would argue is a kind of municipal lobbying firm for about 25 years. Oh, it morphed okay. into more, um, you know, energy infrastructure related. So again, always awesome that these companies, big companies got to pay me to learn their businesses and their industry. <laughs> so that was great. Um, and then as that morphed from, you know, the typical lobbying of municipalities, utilities, government in general, uh, communications, how you message information back to them back and forth, it then turned into, you know, what's the natural evolution of most lobbyists? Well, actually, I don't know if I want to say most lobbyists. Um, I, I found my passion in energy and it became more, we became project developers. We ultimately enabled other developers and got involved much more into the sales and execution of really business development within the energy space. Okay. Everything from selling customer information systems to utilities, uh, to uh, developing wind farms, solar farms, energy from waste, um, and, and understood the different facets of moving these sort of transactions so it was, again, great opportunity. And again, you know, probably 2009, worst time to do this thought, gee, how do I how do I grow away from just being the consultant in this equation? How do I make more money, to be honest with you? And uh, the logic in 2009 was how do you move from so consultant to more asset manager? How do I become less than just, oh, yeah, we pay you. Tell us what we want you to tell us and more here's how we get projects to the finish line. And so it morphed eventually into a publicly traded company through coming out of that recession. And again, it was awesome, got to learn. We owned a large mechanical contracting company. We owned an HVAC oh. services building controls company, a geo exchange design build company. So, you know, we were selling heat pumps. It was great and awesome to further understand that business so now, once again, from both sides of the meter, if we, if we want to use our sort of industry lingo, yeah. it was awesome to work for utilities on one hand and drive 
utility acquisitions for some of the biggest parties in Ontario, and then also be behind the meter and understand how those mechanical, electrical dynamics work within a customer's uh, perspective. So that all takes me to uh, several months ago being headhunted to to run this fuel cell company, I mean, a fuel cell and a CHP company. And honestly, it was sort of the culmination of understanding, you know, where the market's going, understanding technologies and energy. And again, that behind the meter aspect, it was just a great opportunity to bring all that together and and how do I add that to this company that I'm at today? And and I think I have, but boy, it's been an interesting run to get to this point. So that's a, that's a mouthful, but wow. it's it's pretty pretty exciting. No, that's that's good good for you. And so, what did you do with the with the other company, if you don't mind me asking? Did you sell well, it? Well, so the other company, um, you know, initially I was a COO of it. Okay. Uh, and we had, you know, it was an interesting, uh, at one point we had a $60 million a year mechanical contracting company with a $200 million uh, backlog of sales, right? We closed wow. it and we were waiting to execute. And I think like, you know, for any of the listeners, if you've owned a mechanical contracting company, you know why we quickly sold that within a year. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> There's oh, a yeah. lot of cash management challenges uh, and it just, it wasn't sort of conducive to where we wanted to get to. It wasn't really contributing uh, tremendous value. And we got out of it and ultimately bought an HVAC services building controls business, which is a bit more, you knew where your revenue was going to come from. You understood how you could systematically move up the value chain and greater value proposition. And um, it was a lot more fun. So I, I was COO of that business, left, you know, tried creating other uh, energy services businesses eventually went back again and became the chief growth officer of this publicly traded company and, you know, had some fun with that. And then I was headhunted for this and then I left. So um, a few iterations at it, but, the, the, you know, I will say for any listener who's stuck in this environment, it's one thing to have a great offering every day that, you know, you can offer your customers when you have to add that layer of working within the publicly traded domain yeah. of the public markets. Wow. That adds a whole new layer of stakeholders oh, yeah. and approaches and models that, you know, the average business owner would have no appreciation for. And it's just, I'm not going to say it's complicated. It's just another layer of managing expectations across the board. Yeah. Well, it sounds like your past roles sort of set you up uh, for success in this one. And so how long have you been, sorry, with Alkaline? For I, I think Canada? since May 10th, to be exact, but I guess wow, about six okay. months now. Okay. Not counting the days, but May 10th. Yeah, good. Good for you. And obviously you're enjoying it. And I'd love for you to review uh, for yeah. our listeners you know, who Alkaline Fuel Cell Power is. I did a little bit of research last night and you, you mentioned already the CHP component of it. Yeah. Just talk about, you know, what you guys do as a company and, and what you sort of stand for, your vision, your mission, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, thinking of, of the listeners, I'm not trying to sell them something. Um, so I'm not going to be so <laughs> salesman-y. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, the most salesman is, look, it's bringing power to the people, I think, fundamentally. Um, again, with that appreciation of where the markets are going, decarbonization, what that's high level going to mean to to rates and structures. Um, I think 
what's lost in this equation of decarbonization is how does the average person win from it? And at the moment, I think they're all paying the more than the lion's share from it uh, yeah. to pay for it. And so um, the, the fuel cell development, so the core of our name, Alkaline Fuel Cell Power, uh, over a year ago, this business uh, acquired a fuel cell power NV in Belgium to develop fuel cells. And, oh, you know, we weren't necessarily starting from scratch. I mean, a lot of knowledge in the sector. Uh, and a lot of knowledge from the uh, the team that was acquired, um, they were focused on, and now we're focused on uh, sort of two lines of business on the fuel cell side of the house. One is a four kilowatt, arguably a bit higher at peak, but a four kilowatt home unit, a CHP home unit. Wow, which, okay. You know, it's interesting. Um, if you had to develop fuel cell today, I don't think most people who would develop one would say, yeah, let's go to the audience that gets hydrogen the last, right? And let's try to sell them but but it works out in the manufacturing the whole process um so you know you probably think grid size uh industrial users you think much larger applications and if you thought like that you wouldn't necessarily go down the path of alkaline you'd go pam right. you'd go solid oxide or something um but if you really think through and i think these people were really strategic in their day when you really think through when the dust settles and hydrogen is now available I think the average homeowner will benefit the most and the greatest from having access to this type of technology that's lower cost. Uh, it's a bit bigger than PEM, yes, but it's lower cost, fits in a home, uh, and provides really that affordable, renewable, reliable aspect to their to their life for energy. And so, so we're going down a path of building out that fuel cell line, which, hey, here we are, you know, a year and change after funding it, uh, come January of 2023, we're launching our prototype of our four kilowatt uh, oh, fuel okay. cell. So that that's awesome. And then, you know, realizing as I stipulated earlier that, well, hydrogen will get to that end customer probably last in the equation because again, the industrials, campuses, people will get access to it first. Um, we, you know, I it started in May, we migrated a little bit in the summer where we said, let's continue the four kilowatt, but let's move towards building a bigger generator type unit instead, right? Or so supplement so that we can bring that to markets quicker because in most of Europe, you know, you can't do a construction site without non-fossil fuel power running that site. Right. And so as we start looking at those opportunities that don't need pipelines of hydrogen being delivered to them already, then that generator application of our fuel cell with tanks on site or an RV, you know, a unit backing up uh, hydrogen could make a lot of sense. And so we, we now have this other line of, you'll get to a 10 kilowatt stackable fuel cell unit that other can integrate into their packages, right? Their balance of plant, a Generac or someone like that. So okay. those are the two lines of fuel cells. But, you know, high level, it's from a few kilowatts up to stacked about 100 kilowatts or so as a package. Right. Um, that's economic, actually okay. quite economic. As soon as you get beyond that, because of the size and, and certainly the lack of density compared to things like a PEM, you might start using, you know, it might not be that economic as you get a bit bigger, but we know our sweet spot. And generally, they're the people who are going to suffer the most with decarbonization costs. So yeah. we're pretty excited about that. So that's the fuel cell business. is It's quite amazing. Great team in Belgium. And then the other part of the business, now this goes back to being publicly traded. Um, our fuel cell isn't going to be there. We still have to manufacture it. We still have to, you know, then then even when you're selling it, you know, how long does it take to get to to cash flow positive, right? That that business. Yeah. So that's still a few years out. But the public markets wanna 
want to see a company that well how are you how are you going to generate profit how are you going to get there uh, and so before i started this company acquired a small uh, pipeline of chp assets you know literally 300 kilowatt average base load within a, a you know a resident multi-res building a condo or a hospital okay. so it's going to be on 24 7 typical combustion engines man engines take your pick um yeah. so we have one operating asset in toronto uh, and we have another one that's already signed and, and you know, will hopefully uh, be up and running in, in less of the next year and a pipeline of, you know, $50 million worth of projects to deploy. So wow. from that perspective, the idea was, you know, it's this energy transition. So we're taking the combustion engine. Um, you know, do you necessarily want to grow your market on the back of natural gas? Not necessarily, but. For all your listeners, Ontario is not the cleanest market in the coming years. And <laughs> no, so right. having, you know, 80, 85 percent plus efficient systems uh, that are using natural gas and, and heat recovery is still more um, effective from a carbon reduction, carbon reduction than using the grid itself. So, um, you know, we're happy with that. So we have a really interesting pipeline of projects that make us more money than they make utilities. And we're giving discounts to customers. So we have these two disparate businesses. Um, they'll grow at different times. One's meant to generate, deploy assets, generate revenue and earnings quicker. Yes. That helps investors understand there's an underpinning, right? There, there's an infrastructure that underpins it. So you can wait for the hockey stick and the fuel cell. That's my right, line. I like the hockey stick. Up. Yeah, you're trying to balance the two. So I'm building this alternate asset class that eventually could use our, our equipment in a lot of the deployment in our assets. Um, again, you know, to differentiate our our CHP business, it's just easier when you're doing a baseload model, right? It's easier yeah. to understand your revenue. So it's primarily baseload. There can be some backup in it. Um, and then our fuel cell business, our fuel cell units themselves are really designed for peaking and backup. They're not designed for baseload. But along the way, there's a nice combination of how do you add in, um, you know, backup and peaking systems to maybe a baseload system? How do you combine the two? So we think in the long run, it's, it's going to be a great package, certainly yeah. for where the prices are going in the industry. Yeah, no, wow, there's so much so much to unpack there. <laughs> yes, um, there is. I guess at the starting point, you know, when I when I looked at your website last night and you know as you mentioned uh you know over the, this discussion today your focus as it relates to the fuel cell part of your business you know your focus being really on the residential and or i'll call it the small power sector yeah, yeah. is really different from what most people are focused on as you know you you stated that right everybody's yeah, going yeah. Big, right you know but we, it, it is but the truth is when you look at the economics of where things are going it actually is the best bang for the buck because yeah. You know, you being at CM, the challenge. So this is an interesting uh, uh, observation, I think, for the industry. You look at Europe, you look at these pipelines all being converted over to hydrogen, all in real time, it's happening, and people have access to it. That's great. But Europe is already such an interesting market because thermal systems have, for the most part, been decoupled away from the electrical system. Yeah. So that's why I think Europe is far easier for them to decide, oh, we're a hydrogen economy to achieve our net zero versus the electrification you know mantra and model in north america but if you look at them and think yes electricity prices are higher in say belgium uh, and uk and various markets and there's a bunch of reasons for that but because of that decoupling there's a lot greater thermal efficiency in these in these buildings they use a lot right. more heat pumps right. so just more thermally efficient 
um, in North America where on average, you know, rates are going to be a lot cheaper. But if you're going to try to decarbonize the grid, then I, that is not going to be the case for long, right? So rates have to go up to meet what are these interesting peaking requirements and two-way power requirements if you're going to overbuild for that. Yeah. So now you see a scenario where rates start to climb far greater than you think they should for an average customer to meet it. But because of the lack of thermal efficiency, sticking in a fuel cell that can do both means I have a lot more efficiency to play with on both sides of the equation, the electric and the thermal. I actually yeah. think in the long run, selling fuel cells to homeowners when they have access to hydrogen in North America will be far more, you know, a quicker payback than even in Europe. Yeah. So that sounds yeah. sad or sort of counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but the lack of efficiencies here make it far more lucrative. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to touch on the hydrogen delivery piece in a second, but before we do that, uh, going back to your CHP business, you know, it sounds like you have an operating asset in Toronto. What, what's your structure then, Frank? Uh, do you guys, like, is it a power purchase agreement or a form of an energy service agreement? Like, do you own and operate the asset or are you yeah, just we, selling we, the technology? Good questions. Are, so in this current one, we own the asset. It's a long-term, okay. uh, you know, contract for, uh, for electricity uh, in addition to some heating. And obviously seasonally, it's a big different and on yeah. the... Uh, revenue side, we take the gas risk on that site, which is already okay. fundamentally different. Okay. Um, I think, you know, in speaking to the people who we bought it from and understanding it better, I think, you know, risk is in the eye of the beholder. And it's one thing if our province went down a path of, of getting rid of all natural gas and their power sources, then we risk the spark spread issue of, you know, where are we going, but they're not decoupling it. So yeah. in taking on gas risk, what are we really taking on? in risk, you know, from a macro level compared to, um, uh, you know, the province. And there's a lot of CHP developers that come hell or high water would never, ever take on that kind of gas risk. And that's what makes a lot of Conroe Corps and, and organizations say, oh, we don't want to do that. Right. Um, I think we have an appreciation of that value in taking it. Yeah. I think, you know, um, I'll say this, if, if we're giving a discount, so this, there's a spark spread module in there where if things change then the 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 discount changes but if we're giving on average say a 20 percent discount compared to what you pay for electricity from the grid so if we're giving that to a customer so they're saving from that um but we're making a slightly higher return on our investment than the local utility it kind of begs the question of how over how bloated or how mm -hmm. expensive is that local delivery and that's just a simple example of this is baseload Right. You know, I understand maybe they should be more cost effective for peaking, but if on base load we're giving a discount and still earning a higher return than the utility, there's something wrong in this equation. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we're giving a greater carbon reduction, you know, strategy for that Conocorp, let's say. So there's a lot of opportunities here to scale that business. And I think it only gets better. And as soon as you start adding in maybe it's hydrogen blending into a lot of these assets some uh cogen systems can obviously go hydrogen yeah um and then you know you can always blend in rng there's an interesting path to help decarbonize for those buildings even if we stick in a combustion engine today right uh whereas the grid has to really overspend to make up that difference um so we're, we're pretty confident no that's great and and on the gas risk side that includes presumably carbon emissions priced in is that right that's right Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. and the cost. I mean, we're we're not. You know, I guess every customer is a little different. Some customers, uh, if if a customer wants, I mean, you know, you're an engineering firm. If a customer wants, if they're driven by more of the commissions out 
outcome, then you know you're going to design it a certain way. If someone's driven by having this reliability, you know, four nines reliability or something, then they'll be driven a certain way. Um, right. And certainly, we're pretty nimble as a developer, owner, operator. You know, we're not so in love with any one piece, one particular piece of equipment, uh, and we can always design it in the way you know you need to customize it to meet those objectives. We just know that based on what we're up against, which is really the grid alternative, it's not difficult. Right. Right. To meet it. Right. That, that's really right. what it comes down to. The harder part isn't that. The harder part is coming up with a construct that makes that counterparty say, "Oh, well, we're okay with it." Right. And too many people go into this saying, well, this is how the model works and customer, why won't you sign this contract? Well, because the contract is just too risky for them or yeah. or it's not financeable. or So um, I think we have the right ingredients in there. Yeah, interesting. Now, from a market focus perspective, are you just focused on Ontario then, Frank, or do you go broader than that for, for both you parts know, of the, the you business? You know, it's a really I good guess. question. I'd say we go broader than that. It's just the reality is, I mean, I'm in Toronto, um, have a few resources we use that came with this acquisition. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is the pipeline are in the greater Toronto area of projects that right. we already have on our table. So there's no need to you know, go spend a lot of extra money trying to develop projects in other markets awesome. that yeah. they're already at in our lap here. Right. Uh, certainly, I think you know, not having resources abroad to be able to even systematically process them, the answer would probably be more acquisitions in those other markets as they, as they arise. Yeah. And there's definitely conversations for acquisitions of other, of other plants, other operating plants. Um, but it's just, you know, uh, it's, we have projects that are here that we were able to move on. So why wouldn't we? Right. No, that's great. And so now let's switch back over to the fuel cell part of the business for a minute. We, uh, I mentioned we, I would get to this, um, you know, the, the delivery of hydrogen for to residential customers yeah. as it relates to operating your fuel cell. What are you envisioning is going to happen and when do you think if you were if you had your crystal yeah. ball when do you think all of that's going to well i mean from, from a european model? perspective um our units would be ready for when you know there's there's as every uh, as every region of countries in the netherlands and belgium and different places start turning on their their hydrogen uh clearly you know we're not giving exact timing but clearly as our units are being manufactured there's an opportunity to sell to the end customers downstream of that so you know, we're trying to match that up and and from a european perspective i think sales will take off quicker on maybe not residential but more remote backup more generator applications where you don't need a pipeline that will happen quicker we believe in our projections um from a north american perspective you know part of what i think my role is since i started is the quicker i get north america to to appreciate and adopt a quicker strategy of getting hydrogen to end customers then obviously the quicker we get more sales here and develop more manufacturing here and everything um and you know i guess there's probably you know three or four ways that, that occurs right and the one that will take the longest would be um you know, do I think an end customer tomorrow on, on, on a farm or something will be able to create their own hydrogen from, you know, solar PV or, you know, or even an atmospheric uh, unit? <clears throat> That's still a ways out to make it economic, to make it on the site. Right. But right. Um, so so that, you know, eventually I do. There's great companies out there who are already doing this. That's going to take time. Um and I think that's where the market's going is eventually hydrogen will be so readily available on site, just like a heat pump can sort of take thermal from the ground or yeah. from the air that 
I think that's where energy goes for the average consumer, but that's not there yet. Um, and think in Europe, the you know obviously it's hydrogen pipelines that will deliver it. I think in North America, I don't really, I don't have an exact data of when I when I envision hydrogen pipelines, 100% hydrogen get delivered. But I think in the foreseeable future, you know, looking 10, 20 years out, we're talking about hydrogen blends in natural gas pipelines. And maybe it's sooner, but hydrogen, um, 20% blend seems to be that sort of magic number of not affecting the burner tip values of, you know, uh, utilities content with. Um, but that's then that's great because a 20% blend is sort of the optimal efficiency number of a hydrogen separator that you can put on an actual site. So if you if you imagine, you know, Enbridge people finally injecting hydrogen to a downstream customer base of, say, thousands of customers, um, if no one does anything, then every one of their boilers or any one of their units that use natural gas are now going to use 20 percent hydrogen in the, the burner tip of those units. Right. Um, but for customers like hopefully ours uh, who say, well, we don't want the natural gas part, but we love the hydrogen. It's just another a delivery model of getting hydrogen to a customer. You stick in a hydrogen separator unit, and there are some that are, you know, being commercialized, where you're literally just extracting that 20% hydrogen that's flowing oh, by, interesting. and yeah. you're extracting solely the hydrogen, getting metered for that, and now downstream of that point, whether it's a home, a fuel cell, a community, a subdivision, you've now found a way to deliver hydrogen to those end customers. Um, you know, in your in your pipeline, and and you're now able to meet their use for fuel cells or whatever right. they're going to use it for. As opposed to on-site car. storage or transportation for on-site storage. Yeah, and and okay. You know, I think in the in the short term, yeah, there there's probably going to be some need, depending if you're doing a community uh, size one, then you might need to incorporate some extra capacity on-site, right? Because you know, pulling out. The 20% blend now relies on Enbridge and others ensuring they're delivering 20%. So yep. it, it's, you know, it's not a perfect solution, but if you have a home, if you have a customer, an industrial, you have an end customer who really wants that hydrogen, this is just another avenue of, well, if it's cost effective and the gas company is delivering it, then this is a great way to to get my hydrogen without the big storage on site. So I think right. that that's something that we're certainly trying to enable and we have a pilot that's going to test that out and we're getting close on picking uh, a site to do that and some interesting sites right. can't wait to announce. Um, so that's another way. And and again, I think there's just so many people here, unlike maybe Europe, right? Because the way that they decouple and everything, so many customers here who rely on natural gas for their other baseload power or just other, you know, heating other sources. I don't see that immediate conversion over to hydrogen. I get it. But a 20% blend goes a long way towards supporting the growth of the hydrogen industry for sure. Um, the other answer, which gets interesting, is let's talk about ammonia, right? So, um, so uh, you know, we'll talk about this a bit later, but, you know, in the conversion of renewables uh, to hydrogen and then back to electricity, say, behind the meter, yes, there's, you know, maybe a 30% loss on the front end you know, maybe, right? I and mean, that's always going to get better. And then there's a conversion. Ours converts, you know, 90% uh, conversion, electricity and heat. So I know it's not the most efficient use, but neither is the creation of those electrons at the source. Right, right. And all the delivery, all the loss heat factor, all the mm -hmm. vibration loss, like everything you could think about, that thing's showing up at like, you know, well under 50% delivery, if not 35% of that electron. So, 
it's not like it's a hundred percent, right? So it's all comparing yeah. apples to apples. Um, but I digress. And the reason why I bring that up is, so why would you then convert it to say ammonia? And, you know, one of the reasons would be, well, uh, as people talk about ammonia delivering, say, hydrogen globally, they, they do it in the vein of it's the logistics. It's taking it in, in ships and in containers to, you know, Asia, Europe, wherever, and then you can convert it back and it's endothermic. So that's, that's sort of great from an energy use perspective. Um, but it's just the density of it, right? I mean, once you put it to ammonia, you just have, uh, I, I mean, I'm simplifying it. Maybe it's like one fifth and it could be more than that. It's just so much smaller in storage thus everything else you need to do to deliver it but because you know ammonia has this uh, this connotation right now of oh it, it's about long term it's long distance delivery and that's interesting and, and so then we sent another pilot with a group that has an ammonia cracking technology and so if you can visualize so let's let's not talk about a home for a second um right so that maybe that's not the eventual destined location in say toronto uh, for what you want to do with ammonia conversion to to hydrogen in real time for your fuel cell. Um, but but I will say, if you want to graphically sort of uh, have this image, a cubic meter of ammonia on your property would deliver for the average home about 20 days worth of 24 seven power. So that that cubic meter pack, you know, packs a pretty big punch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just to put that in perspective, right, to visualize that. So but we're not talking about a home. Let's talk about, say, a now remote property. Talk about a campus, right, a university which has a space or a hospital or industrial site or a commercial facility that, you know, again, you're more remote. You, you have the space. You're a farmhouse, maybe you're a cottage. All of a sudden, where they historically had maybe propane, diesel, other backup generators for it, all of a sudden, an ammonia storage slash cracking unit sounds, you know, kind of interesting to maybe that's way to deliver uh, hydrogen far easier to those end customers, those remote customers, and to, to our generator or our CHP fuel cell than, you know, than the alternative. And I think right. it's there. Um and why it's also interesting why I love ammonia and more and more. So I don't think it's just solely destined for the long distances. Uh, I mean, arenas use ammonia all the time, so it's not that problematic. It stores at room temperature. Uh, there's already all kinds of codes and, and, and systems around how yeah. you deliver it and handle it. So that's kind of easier. Uh, and the truth is, um, unlike gas, and that's a whole other issue, if there were a leak, if there were an issue, you'd smell it, you'd know it, and you can deal with it accordingly. So it's right. almost kind of foolproof from that perspective that it's something to easily uh, deal with. Um, but it's also in the, in the cracking technology. So it does use up, uh, um, you know, you're getting rid of nitrogen in it, it uses up some energy in, in the process. Um, but the conversion from ammonia over to hydrogen, it would be a challenge for many PEM fuel cells. And the reason is a PEM fuel cell requires fairly pure hydrogen to, to deliver in that fuel cell. Um, so does ours, except uh, where theirs could take maybe 30 parts per million of ammonia of the nitrogen within it, ours can take 3,000 parts per million. Mm. So where the benefit comes in is that we're just a better ammonia to power play because we can take less. So it means you either have less capital in that tracking play or less operating in it in order to achieve okay. what we need to run a fuel cell. So we think there's an opportunity there. and. 
Certainly in the remote areas, I think ammonia, I've already been dealing with utilities, with other customers who like the idea of having what historically might have been a diesel backup generator and not very proud of one, you know, in those instances. Yeah. All of a sudden, you can have ammonia on site that they have care and control of the site. It's protected. And literally, as there's downstream last mile challenges with delivering power, all of a sudden, a generator fuel cell with green ammonia could solve it for them on their side of the equation right, and be right. seamless and less capital than if they did a new substation or those things. So I think it's a good market. And and probably the biggest one would be if it means the success of some of those projects means natural gas delivery companies realize, wait a second, we can start losing market share because we don't move quickly enough to embed or to to inject 20% hydrogen in our yeah. system, yeah. then I think it's just great business <clears throat> to have multiple people <clears throat> playing out how to deliver hydrogen. So that's a quick, you know, that's not a quick answer. It's a long answer on, there's a few ways to get hydrogen to the customer. Um, and I think the, the the cost of where hydrogen's going from say a dollar a kilogram in 2031 in the US, albeit not delivered, I think there's a lot of interesting ways to get it to a customer because it yeah. will be economic for a customer to to use. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's great. And yeah, we've been very, we've been, you know, well, I guess from from CEM's perspective, we consider ourselves a molecule-based company. So everything starts yeah. with a molecule for us, you know, whether it's, we might be generating electricity and waste heat from a CHP unit, for example, but it starts with a molecule, whether it's a hydrogen molecule or if it's a natural gas molecule or whatever yeah. that looks like, right? So we're big advocates and we think that, unfortunately, in some cases, the messaging has a little been a little bit slow, I would say, particularly in Ontario, as it relates to the whole story between, you know, I will call it the electrification story and yes. that thermal story, you know, whether it's RNG or hydrogen. Yeah. So it's interesting that you were talking about that because it's yeah, something but, that- But Lisa, uh, this is where I think it's so inside baseball and only because I've done energy, you know, utility transactions and work with all these guys. Um, it's because, you know, this is the Achilles heel of the industry in the long run is that um, the people who pick the regulators in many cases have equity in the utilities that they regulate, yeah, right? And, and you know, yeah. here we are in, increasing interest rates today, but a number of years ago during the Great Recession, you know, you couldn't find, um, you know, people were dying to take a 1% loss on their pension funds just to protect it. Yeah. Um, so bond yield expectations were still around, say, 3% for a good chunk of time. And yet, if you wanted to invest in a utility, they were still earning you 9% uh, on your equity. And you thought, wait a second, that's three times the bond yield expectations. And what happened during that period is that all these regulators, all these government entities that appoint them, no one put pressure on maybe reducing that to some kind of mechanism to match what are reasonable expectations, risk adjusted returns. No one did anything because they were the net beneficiaries of the valuations of those utilities all of a sudden. And then people divest, they make them publicly traded, and all of a sudden they're benefiting on the back of the ratepayers for that difference. Yeah. And yeah. and so I think because of that, when electrification was the North American model, I think it was more groupthink more than anything, it became we all benefit if the grid and all of the equity owners of them, um, they all benefit if all of a sudden electrification was the answer to decarbonize. But let, let's go back to certain basics, right? Let's go back to a geo exchange project. 
everyone knows you don't chase the last few tons of cooling or heating you know to put something in the ground that will be used um what a few times a year if that right you would never chase your peaking with a very expensive capital asset you'd never get a good performa on that right. and yet every utility is talking about double triple the expenditure of their grid related assets to deliver decarbonization yeah well yeah. who's paying for that right yeah. so yeah. so where are rates yeah. going to go in order to achieve that and yeah. and the two way power and the dur model in order to achieve that kind of crazy utilization or or not utilization but to create that kind of uh, investment rates are going to go through the roof and to me it's just um so you already have one part of the picture of they all have i'm going to be blunt about that a pretty big vested interest in why they're pushing electrification but as more and more information comes out and understanding you can't just throw money and invest capital and overspend at that um because they also render themselves useless in competing with the alternative behind the meter. Yeah. And so if they if they keep going too far uh and there's only so much elasticity with a the customer, if they keep going too far and where those rates are going to go, then all kinds of great thermal opportunities on site opportunities with renewables and then arguably the delivery of hydrogen and fuel cells, if my level life levelized cost of energy is going to be easily under 15 cents a kilowatt hour in say Ontario and i would even argue could conceivably be like maybe under 10 with the price of hydrogen where it's going well what utility will be cheaper than that to deliver yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so so this is where it's going and i think a lot of utilities are slowly waking up to and even governments will wait a second there probably is a 5 to 15% hydrogen play within them delivering power and and maybe it's more sporadic it's just that they need it in the system because you can't overbuild the system to try to accomplish all of that without the hydrogen because you're yeah, just going to yeah. price yourselves out of being competitive now the uh the TRL level of your uh fuel cell technology is are are you at that commercialization stage or where are you on the TRL scale are you 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 cuz you mentioned some pilots but have you issued like you have some pilots that are being sort of put in motion at this point or what is so that our, like with our right? prototypes for our 4 kilowatt units being ready in January um okay. and you know we we're definitely looking at CE certification in Europe for that yeah. um it, it's all a question of i guess depending on the site we eventually pick what what we really do require to run those pilots and test them um but you know currently i'm i'm a big fan of what's happening out here i'm trying to find two exact you know two perfect sites to test out this ammonia cracking solution and the hydrogen separator solution so i'm getting closer on those sites with other partners um we do have the the uh technology partners to enable them in the ammonia yeah. and the uh uh hydrogen um so come january a lot of the technical specs will be more public of what it is we're doing and what it what can it it can achieve and uh, and the branding and some of that will come out so a lot of that we're sort of keeping tight um there are some patents involved with with what it is we're rolling out but again you know these technologies have been around for a while so the patents are very specific on certain aspects of the balance of plant and how we've configured it um so that's kind of where we're going you try not to get too far ahead on on what we're going to do from a sales perspective uh we'll announce manufacturing soon enough on, on and where we're going to put it um yeah i was about to ask that question yeah. if that's if that's taking place here or elsewhere but uh i guess that's yeah, still the, to be the first determined. plan will definitely be in in europe okay. um by the time this comes out probably be public the first plan will definitely be in europe 
um, just to make economic sense for what market we're going after. And yeah. I think as we start proving out the economics and, and possibly the incentives and models here in North America, then absolutely my intention is to have a Canadian uh, plant as quickly as we can. Uh, and, you know, certainly there's a number of municipalities in Ontario who put their hand up and said, please pick here. Here's some space we have. So, you know, we're playing all that out. Um, I see those two manufacturing for sure uh, in the coming years. Um, but, you know, from a levelized cost of energy, we know where we're going and we'll have better numbers shortly. Uh, we know where the price of hydrogen's going. I mean, there's a lot of naysayers out there, but um, I'm sure you can appreciate when uh, when China started dumping solar cells globally. I think people would have been, they were shocked to understand it went from like 540 a watt installed to where it went to and not that long. Um, I think what the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA in the US, yep. what Europe's doing in driving hydrogen and now reacting to the IRA and, and you know, Canada with your tax incentive, yep. you can't stop that train. It's left the track. It's yeah. going to get cheap quickly. Um, there'll be some, you know, ups and downs along the way, but when every, you know, when Shell and everyone are working on electrolyzer giga plants and, and projects, I don't see it slowing down. It, it's just a movement that cannot stop. And the question will always be, to, you know, everyone debates, well, what do you use hydrogen for? Where should you use it? You know, it's a very simple rule of thumb. Where is it economic? End of story. And if it's economic yeah. <laughs> for an end customer to say it's cheaper mm -hmm. than being connected to the grid for my, you know, all my power, uh, then that's what the customer base is going to do. And yeah. um, that's it. You know, everyone's trying to pigeonhole. No, no, you guys aren't going to get access to it. Right. Who votes? I think yeah. they're going to get yeah. access to cheaper, like, <laughs> you know, cheaper sources of, of energy. So. Yeah, I've I've been astonished. I so I've been with the firm for about six years now, and well, actually, just just hit my six year anniversary. I think it was two days ago. Congrats! Um, thank you, thank you. And you know, it's it's interesting because we've been doing this podcast for maybe three years, somewhere in around there. But the the level and the 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 number of conversations that have taken place on the topic of hydrogen yeah. and. Um, and frankly, other post-carbon strategies, whether it's carbon capture or, you know, yeah. it's just accelerated so quickly. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And well, we as a firm, our, you know, our business has just transformed. And, yeah. you know, we, we were historically, we were all basically, as our name suggests, cogeneration and energy management. That was where we yeah. kind of focused. That was our playing ground. And uh, and that has just changed so significantly over the last couple of years. We're doing carbon capture. We're doing hydrogen. We're doing uh, renewable natural gas and biogas. It's just it's just broadened to a point where it's such an exciting place to be sitting and and to play in. And uh, yeah, it's just unbelievable how fast you, things are. You know, forming, you know, you're right. I mean, I've only been here six months, but you know, it was a few month process. And in doing my homework, I couldn't believe like to what speed. Yes. Um, hydrogen was just the conversation, the, the appreciation of it's going to have a role was yeah. changing. And so even provinces and states early on, no, it's electrification, right? This is two years yeah. ago they said this. Yeah. And all of a sudden they quickly, very quickly started realizing, oh, my God, no, we need to, we need to augment it. And, and I think, you know, there's the Achilles heel of it happening so fast. I mean, I, I laughed a few months ago. There was one of the banks put up their their pathway to net zero and, <laughs> uh, you know, documented. I'm looking at it and there's not a mention of hydrogen in there once. And I think if you started too early, 
in you know the underpinning of what your report was going to be and then you're filling it in you even missed the tea leaves on what was happening yeah, right yeah. and so governments and their their advisories and everything are is things are changing so quickly the ira i think just threw everything on steroids um it's changing so quickly so fast that it's the knowledge base is it's frightening even people in the hydrogen industry um you know, trying to get them to understand what's now possible that wasn't, you know, they didn't know of six months ago, it's not that easy. So there's a massive lack of education. And and the problem isn't, why aren't we telling people? It's that when we tell them one thing, it changed so quickly within a few months. So, yeah. and, and I'll tell you personally, um, joined the, you know, Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association, started having more broader industry conversations about what's possible. Yeah. The ISO in Ontario and just explaining where, where I see fuel cells fitting in possibly and how this could work, it's quite eye-opening for them to the point where we didn't even know there was a stationary fuel cell that can be economic at that level. Yeah. And and they you know, and I'm trying not to get too far ahead of where I know how economic it's going to be. Um, but that's what's also helping is that the industry needs to understand, you know, Canada's Achilles heel already in hydrogen is we're only thinking of the Ballards, the loop you know, yeah. the mobile application of it, right? And then if you think about stationary, oh, well, it must be just for really big applications, it must be, you know, several megawatts worth of applications. Uh, no, we're talking about behind the meter. And that is pretty frightening for people to realize that just changes all the paradigm they thought they understood, but how you deliver energy. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. so that's certainly part of the problem. It's not just that hydrogen itself has become, wow, this is really pertinent and it, it's, it's, you know, really important today is that even people in the industry mm -hmm. don't realize to what extent what we're working on is now even there and relevant and economic. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally understand. That's great. Um, yeah, and I feel like we could we could keep this conversation going oh, for you know we hours. <laughs> uh, we're, we're coming up on the hour, and I'm thinking maybe I, you know, I have so many other questions I could ask you, but... Uh, yeah, you know, I'll do rapid-fire answers. Uh, What's that, sorry? I'll do rapid-fire answers. <laughs> No, it's been great. I, uh, you know, really appreciate the time that you've uh, you spent with us, Frank. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it was great to have you on, and hopefully, we're all the wiser for it. And uh, to our listeners, thank you so much for listening in to Energy Radio. Hopefully, you, you enjoyed this conversation with Frank Carnavalli, the CEO of Alkaline Fuel Cell Power. And uh, yeah, if you have any suggestions, uh, again, to our listeners of other guests that you would like to hear on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email address is lisa at cemeng.ca. And uh, of course, feel free to rate us as well. And thank you again, Frank. Very much appreciated and enjoy the rest of your day, okay? Thank, thank you. Thank you very much, Lisa. This is great. Thank you. Thank you.